Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Greg Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Gritty, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Welcome to Say It Ain't Contagious. I'm Lincoln Mitchell, joined today by Tova Wang and Craig Calcaterra. Frank Gritty and Adrian Burgos Jr. are away on assignment, and today we have a very special guest. He is a comedian, he is a world-famous podcaster, an actor, and a social critic. Uh, Greg Proops, we're very happy uh, to have you with us today. Thanks, Link. It's nice to be here. And maybe we could begin, you could begin telling us a little about how your, your relationship with baseball, how you're a fan, and also, I'm curious, I know Craig is curious too, whether there's a particular team you root for, and maybe what, where they are in the standings <laughs> right now. Here we go, early. Uh, my team's the San Francisco Giants. and What a surprise. Uh, just at the moment, we happen to be in first place uh, over the Dodgers, and we had an awesome comeback last night, and Wilmer Flores hit his 100th tater off of, uh, I can't remember the Dodgers, uh, uh, the one who has 330 saves for them. And uh, uh, yeah, so we're, we're looking good this season, which I didn't expect at all, to be honest. It was a huge surprise to me. Uh, that we would be this good. And this is a kind of, a, this team reminds me of the late 60s, early 70s Giants, uh, because it's all pop, or, or even the late 80s Giants, um, because I didn't expect us to be this kind of team with the three-run homers and whatnot. Uh, I thought we would be a scrappy team. And, uh, you know, the 2010, 2012, 2014 championship teams were not all pop. Uh, and, and this team's got a lot of bangs, so I'm pretty excited about that. So you've been a fan for a long time. Can you tell us about your baseball story? Oh, kittens. Yeah, I started going to games and uh, probably started listening in like 66. And and I went to my first game in 67. My father worked at a restaurant. And um, I guess the cook there had um, tickets. And in those days, tickets were, I'm not kidding, like six, seven, eight dollars to sit down in the box seats. And um, this is the late 60s. So I went to my first game of Candlestick. Right field was open and there was a cyclone fence. And when McCovey came up, every, all the kids got out of the bleachers and stood under the fence, right? And then about three o'clock in the afternoon, like always a candlestick, all the hot dog wrappers would whip up against the fence. Um, and I f- saw my first drunks there. Uh, <laughs> uh, people used to smoke cigars in the stands. Uh, um, my father used to curse people out for not standing for the anthem because he was a sociopath. And, um, <laughs> And the first team I saw was Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, Juan Marichal, Gaylord Perry. Then later, Bobby Bonds, uh, who, by the way, was every bit the base runner that Barry is or was, uh, and even a better fielder, let's be honest. I, I know Barry won a bunch of gold gloves, but I saw Bobby play for years and years. And Bobby was a superb athlete. He could have been a football player. He could have been a basketball player. Not that Barry couldn't have. Uh, uh, he had no discipline at the plate as opposed to Barry, who had all the discipline at the plate. Um, Bobby swung at literally anything that came across the plate. 
So I, I fell in love with that team. We never made it. We, uh, 71, we got as close as we could. So I got to see all the great players of the late 60s and early 70s. In other words, Roberto Clemente, Tom Seaver, uh, Willie Stargell, Henry Aaron, uh, um, all the National Leaguers, because my father hated the American League, and we never went to A's games. We went to two. We saw Dennis McClain pitch one year when he got traded to the Senators in 71, and the A's hit five home runs off him, and then they yanked him from the game. But I can I could even tell you how many games we went to in Oakland when I was little. McLean we probably had money on the A's for that game, actually. So that's right. No kidding. Why. And he bet Pepsi in an Oregon. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, the A's were so huge then, and I never went to one of their World Series games. And I was 12, 13, 14. But we went to a million Giants games. I went to hundreds and hundreds of Giants games. My father and I didn't get along, and I don't like him very much. He's quite dead now, thank God. But um, uh, he... Uh, he and I bonded over one thing and that was ball. So, and Candlestick was in a real ropey neighborhood, as they say, what we would call emerging now, but in those days, a ghetto Hunter's point. And um, there was no way to get in and out. We came from the peninsula. So you'd go all the way around and then park in the lot. And then there was this excruciating way out. And then they built the stadium up and, and enclosed it and whatnot. So that's my story. I, I wanted to ask you, Greg, can I ask you about that? Because you know, Lincoln's talked about Candlestick, but he's a little younger than you. And I, I don't know really anyone who went to Candlestick a lot before the 49ers moved in and they built it up. And, you know, my my greatest experience with it is watching the Glenn Ford movie Experiment in Terror, which actually right. makes the place look great. Kelly, but <laughs> Kelly. Was it was it a good ballpark then? I mean, everybody gets the, no, the stories. about It was always it. horrible. Yeah. It, was, it was always dismal and cold and drafty and awful. And, um, you know, when they showed it to uh, Mayor Christopher, uh, they took him at one in the afternoon. Well, one in the afternoon at Candlestick Point is delightful. It's beautiful. It's, uh, it's sunny and the blue skies and whatnot. Right about 2.30, uh, 3-ish, um, it turns into, a, you know, a Wagner opera it like this there's the sky darkens and all of a sudden horrible apparitions yeah the, literally the fog rolled into the stadium like that and i'm not kidding i was at the giants worst game in their worst season in 85 we lost 100 games and i was at game 100 of the losses and um uh the the lights went on i think about two o'clock in the afternoon and there was maybe two thousand people there and you could hear everyone in candlestick <laughs> park in those kind of days and a guy yelled out and the lights come on at giant stadium <laughs> and then we took a lead and then we lost the lead and by the way this is a team with gary renicky and steve uh, uh steve nicosia uh i think david green uh, for just an awful Awful. Manny Trio playing second. It was dreadful. Trio, who we paid a billion dollars right, for, right. for this banjo-hitting second baseman. and He was a poor man's Rennie standard at that point. Right, but Rennie actually had a couple. And right, that one game injuries. where he had like eight right. hits or whatever. But yeah, uh, and and so right about the eighth inning when it looked like we were going to fall. And by the way, someone died that year. Someone fell out of the upper stands and died. So that was the kind of year it was. Yikes. The Giants would do that to you in those days. <laughs> oh, no. I think Jim Davenport managed for part of the season. And Jim Davenport, who lived in my neighborhood in San Carlos, I knew his brother, I knew his son, Gary. I went to school with him. Uh, and, and Donnie. I knew all the Davenports. Um, Jim was a superb third baseman, but maybe one of the worst managers that ever walked the earth. And um, he called everybody, hey, you, because he didn't know anyone's name on the team. <laughs> and uh, uh, right around the eighth inning, when it was clear we were going to lose, 
And this is why I love San Francisco. The fans started chanting, 99, hold the line. 99, hold the line. It's one of my three favorite moments uh, in San Francisco baseball. The other was I took Jennifer years ago to a, a playoff game in 2002. And um, uh, they had this like, you know, MasterCard greatest moments of baseball. One of those horrible, bloody online things, which is way, way too much democracy, right? Because you're letting every douchebag in the world, you know, I'm, I'm from Cincinnati and my favorite moment, you know. So they said the greatest moment in baseball history was Jackie Robinson uh, playing, which, yeah, you could, uh, arguably, yes. However, that's not the greatest, most exciting. You know, it's not a moment. You know what I mean? That's more of a cataclysmic title shift. It's not a moment. In any case, they let Pete Rose, they gave him dispensation, and Pete Rose appeared on a major league diamond at San Francisco and was given a standing ovation. And then they did their all-time MasterCard team or whatever, and they had Mark McGuire at first. And when they introduced Mark McGuire, this count, this crowd at the whatever we call the new ballpark, I always wanted to call it Two Willies, but they've <laughs> called it AT&T and every other corporate fucking horrible revenue flow. Uh, Charles Johnson, you know, I hate unions park or whatever. <laughs> um, the fans started chanting, Barry, 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 and insulted Mark McGuire on national television. So those are my two of my favorite moments in San Francisco baseball history because we're sassy and uh, we know, we also know what's going on in baseball. San Francisco fans aren't, aren't uneducated slobs who show up and then leave in the seventh inning. We're, for, we've suffered far too much to be that kind of fan. If you lived through the 70s uh, and partial 80s in San Francisco, you know what dismal horror baseball can be. Um, it's like being an Indians fan or something. You just, every year you put your chin out and every year they fucking... I was going to ask you that because, you know, you see video or, you, well, film, I guess, of, you know, the late 70s Giants and you see an empty park and you see bad baseball and stuff. And that reminds me, I'm in Ohio and I, I'm not an Indians fan, but I've gone to tons of Indians games, especially in the old park. It was a very similar vibe, a huge drafty on the water park with horrible baseball and about a thousand really knowledgeable people. And there's something to be said about that vibe. No question. I mean, anybody can be uh, St. Louis, you know, where there's a bunch of Midwestern chowder heads and they, and they all love their team and they're unyielding and they're, you know, approbation. Whereas the San Francisco team, we knew we were never going to win ever. And it didn't matter if we got to the playoffs or even the World Series. We knew that somehow we'd find a way to choke. And this last decade has been not not the t 20s, but the teens was our big coming home. Uh, or as Joe Biden would say, an, an altar, go to the altar moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, we came to Jesus in 2010. We finally got over the hump of being that team. I remember standing in the parking lot of Candlestick in 87 after we won game five of the playoffs. All we had to do was win one more game against St. Louis going into there with two left to play. And we were standing in the parking lot going, are we going to do it? And then the consensus was probably not. And we managed to lose those last two games. Not even score a run in those last two games. Oh, not a run. Jose Akendo, uh, Atlee Hamaker, I don't even want to talk about it. I, you know, and then 2002 was just beyond, beyond, beyond. That, that was a psychic wound that only three World Series rings has assuaged. But I mean, look at us since 2015. We haven't been, we really hadn't been to the playoffs since what? We played the Cubs in 2015 or whatever, and we just staggered over the line that year. Um, it's been pretty barfy the last seven, eight years. Uh, 
So we kind of went back to our used to be. And to watch the Dodgers win the uh, World Series during the plague uh, was, uh, wow, that was hard going. I mean, I congratulated them. I actually manned up and congratulated them. But, uh, you know, whatever, 62-game season played in front of no one. And Justin Turner running around coughing on everyone. Not my idea. (laughs) Not my idea of glamour, you guys. Not my idea of glamour. I was going to ask you, um, in the the baseball circles that I tend to be in, I you know a lot of analytics based writers, a lot of guys that think a lot about team building and things like that. But I've always been someone who um, likes to keep your stars around a little while. I know you can keep them past their sell date. I know that sometimes that that could be a, a hindrance to making your team better. But the Giants. Um, and until this year, it was seen like it might have been a mistake. And maybe this year is sort of that dead cat bounce where you're getting a great year out of Crawford. You're getting a great year out of Posey. Um, there's something nice, though, that you guys have had. You called it a victory lap, but it's been a very long victory lap with some well-loved stars that like sort of creates a long, deep connection with the team. Do you have any feelings about the trade-offs there? I mean, maybe if they made a couple of trades a few years ago, they would have had better years than just the two- 2015 season. How do you feel about holding on to the guys versus moving forward? Well, I was all for uh, keeping Posey and Crawford because they're outstanding. Um, Buster Posey's literally one of the best players the Giants have ever had. Uh, and that's including Willie Mays, Barry Bonds, McCovey, whatnot. Um, we've never had a catcher this sensational. Yeah, there was Dick Dietz and, you know, the occasional flash here and there of, of decent catchers over the years. But rookie of the year, uh, MVP three rings and comeback player of the year and then wilderness for four or five years. And then coming back with this giant year, um, he's superb uh, and a right guy, like and a perfect fit for San Francisco because he's a cracker, but he's a really nice one. <laughs> and um, the giants have o- always absorbed that. Like we've had our share of Gaylord Perry's and Madison Bumgarner's and the kind of, you know, Southern dudes sort of fit in in the Bay area, even though heaven knows what their politics are like. <laughs> There's a weird Southern vibe in sometimes in San Francisco, but we're, we're, it's, our tolerance includes people from the South, which you wouldn't expect. Will Clark. I yeah. mean, yeah. you know, like some of our greatest heroes that have ever played for the Giants are straight up from, you know, the South. And I mean, Madison Bumgarner was from a town so small that he dated a girl named Madison Bumgarner <laughs> when he was in high school. I love that fact. There was actually a girl named Madison Bumgarner and they dated Madison Bumgarner dated Madison Bumgarner. So, and when they won the first world series in 2010 and he pitched that superb eight inning masterpiece, they said, were you nervous? And he went, hell no, I pitched in the state finals, (laughs) (laughs) which is ice water, right? Just ice water. Oh boy. Are we showing our coastal bias or what? Right. Who was? (laughs) (laughs) We know our own fan base, too, so what the hell? Hey, look, I grew up in West Virginia, and even I think Madison Bumgarner's a hill jack, Yikes. so it's it's all right. <laughs> oh, anyone who can drink six beers. I assume they did not live in San Francisco during the rest of the year. Oh, hell no. Uh, he, he drank six beers at once. He just not rockets. His, his, but, but, but the single best postseason pitcher the Giants have ever had, maybe outside of Carl Hubble and Christy Matthewson, and I'm serious about that. Joe McGinney, I mean. I was at uh, Game 7 in 2014 at the World Series, and uh, Game 6, too, for that matter. And uh, the single most... The 10-nil blowout? Well, yeah. yeah. The single most impressive baseball or athletic performance of any kind I've ever seen in my life was Madison Bumgarner 
coming in and throwing those blank innings of relief against the Royals and, and clinching it. It was, it, and I hate Madison Bumgarner. I really just don't like the guy, but that was the single most impressive thing I've ever seen on an athletic field. He was superb. Uh, sadly, he didn't get the win. Uh, they gave it to Affeld, as I recall, but uh, it was very yeah. good too. Everybody laughed. Affeld was awesome that year. Yeah. I was at, um, in Hawaii with my wife in Maui and we were watching the game on telly. And then uh, she goes, I'm starving to death. We've got to go eat. It was about the eighth. So we put the game on the radio and it was the national feed, whatever, whoever knuckleheads those were, hopefully not Joe Buck, who's it's not someone I ever wanted to say his name, but there you are. And um, we, st- it got to the ninth and I pulled to- off to a rest stop and the rest stop looked at the Pacific ocean and Kauai and um, the ninth inning came around and there was that terrible error by Perez. And then um, I can't remember who the last batter was. I honestly can't for the uh, Royals. It was Salvador Perez. Salvador Perez popped up. It was another Perez, Bentley. right? It was Salvador oh, yeah, Perez Sal. came out. Because he was the guy who hit the solo home run off of Bumgarner earlier in the series. Yes, and he was the only one who got to him. Right, and then right. I'd said to all my friends, after the 10-0 blowout on game six, I said, tomorrow's game is either 2-1 to one or 3-2. to two. And I don't know anything about predicting, but I'm like, I know enough about baseball. When you are, by the way, the Giants didn't even play their starters by the end of that game, if you recall, in game six. They pulled everybody off the field and put in all the scrubs. Um, I said, the next game will be close. It's not going to be a blowout. You don't play two blowouts in a row in the world. Not with two teams like that. Those teams were excellent. Well, the Giants were, what did Tim Flannery say? We won with a pea shooter and one pitcher. (laughs) It was their third best of those three World Series winning teams, I think. No no question. And and played the best of the three teams we played against. The Kansas City Royals were so good, they actually came back and rolled the league over the next year Mm -hmm. and won the World Series. That's how good they were. Superb team. And um, so when it got to the last batter and uh, he got two strikes on him, uh, uh, the the second strike was high and Perez offered on it. It was he, he was going upwards, the uh, bum garner. And I turned to my wife and I said, popped up playable. And the next pitch they go popped up. Sandoval's under it. And I was like, because I knew exactly the pitch Bumgarner was going to throw to Perez, which was a slightly higher fastball that he would not be able to lay off of, that he would not be able to get wood off of. And he right under it and it went straight up in the air to third base. And then we got out of the car and danced for a while. <laughs> and then we got back in the car and went Nate. But like, uh, that was an, an amazing moment. And uh, like I said, when Christy Matthewson won three games in the 1905 World Series and threw three shutouts, uh, that might be one of the great performances in the World Series. However, putting an asterisk on that, Rube Waddell, who was pitching for the Athletics and was a tremendous left-hander, maybe the best left-hander that ever pitched, um, shortened career, of course. And I think something was terribly wrong with him. Uh, he was what we would call on the spectrum now. Yeah, Hurt himself goofing on the train car, playing with a straw hat and injured his left arm and couldn't play in that series. So he didn't get to pitch against Matthewson. Not that Matthewson pitched against crappy pitchers. It was Gettysburg, Eddie Plank, and, you know, like, Chief Bender. Like, the A staff was rich, but... Wait, wait, wait. He hurt himself playing with a straw hat? Rube Waddell uh, supposedly uh, ate ice cream by the bucket, or drank beer by the bucket, ice cream by the gallon, chased fire trucks. There's legendary stories about them taking wind-up toys and putting them in the coaches' boxes, and he'd get distracted by them. In the minor leagues, there's stories of him 
um, showing up at game time, not in his uniform and street clothes, coming through the stands, taking his shirt off in front of everyone, getting into the clubhouse, putting on his uniform and coming back out, and then doing backflips on the mound, and then pitching games. Like he was... The story that Bob Costas tells in the um, Ken Burns doc is that when they came to get him at the town he lived in Pennsylvania, Connie Mack himself came to come get and sign Rube Waddell. And the town was there with a marching band and Rube got on the train and he had his boater on and they were all in ties and there was banners. And the mayor of the town went, thank you for taking him. <laughs> <laughs> Because he was, I, I the word uh, I want to be delicate about this. He the, he was uh, as Bill James said. He lived a short, violent, exciting life, and I don't know that he was compass mentis. Uh, it's impossible to say now because no one really knows. You know, he died in a flood because he was sandbagging a river and he got pneumonia. He was married and whatnot. Uh, he, he was traded from the athletics and then kind of bounced around the American League for a while and then never made it. But the, the record for strikeouts was 381 or 382, and that was his record. 382. His record yeah. until Koufax broke it. Koufax broke it with 382. And nobody stroked out in, when he pitched, by the way. That was a league that struck out. The guy who led the league in strikeouts had 60. And so he was that kind of pitcher. He, I think, was unhittable uh, a good deal of the time. But he was also uncontrollable um, in so much as discipline wasn't, he missed starts and, you know, he's a fascinating individual. I mean, you know, the dead ball era has a lot of real wild, weird players like Charles Victory Faust and Rube Waddell and um, Bugs Raymond and, you know, all the deaf, uh, the, the, the players that were deaf and, um, and, and mute. Uh, uh, there was a couple of them and they called them in those days dummy. Yeah, like Hoy. Dummy yeah. Hoy. Yes, that was nice. Right, Dummy Hoy and Dummy Foy. And, and then uh, uh, um, the, the American Indian players that played then. Chief. Um, the Giants had a famous one, Chief Myers, and the A's had one. Mind you, they were called Chief, of course, uh, which is horrible. I just like the deaths. The deaths back then were, were something like Ed Delahanty and, and those guys. Right, fell off a train in Niagara Falls or something. No one knows what happened to Ed Delahanty. He was on a train. He was obstreperous and, and shit-faced. The conductor remonstrated with him. And he, uh, my understanding is he was chucked off of the train. By the way, this was the leading hitter in the American League. Like, this guy was hitting, like, 370. And one of five brothers, the Delahunty brothers. Yeah, right. Jimmy, his other, his other uh, brother Jimmy was a star with the athletics. But Eddie Delahunty was, like, what if uh, 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 Mike Trout was a drunk and got thrown off a plane and then walked into a propeller? That's what the story is. Like, Ed Delahunty was literally the best player in the league and got thrown off a train for being obstreperous. Mind you, drink in those days was a real issue. And um, uh, they didn't drink, but, you know, power shakes and get on a bike after the game. They went to the pub and, and Rube Waddell and Bugs Raymond would do this, bring the game ball with them and put it down on the bar. And the bartender, right, right? Here's your whiskey, <sighs> here's your beer. Seriously, they would bring the game ball and fucking put it down. Like this was the old days. and. Um, yeah, he walked off a train trestle. He walked off a bridge. They never found him, I don't think. Or did they find him downriver? They found his body at bottom of Niagara Falls down the river because he was the international bridge that he tried to walk across. And there are conflicting stories about whether he jumped or whether he fell. He probably fell because he was probably drunk. And uh, they found his body a few days later. Bottom of Niagara Falls down the river a piece. 
You guys are deep fans. I love this. No, no, no human on earth wants to hear about Eddie Delahanty. I never not want to hear about Ed Delahanty. <laughs> That's going to make this, uh, this podcast very popular. That absolutely no one wants to hear about the player you guys are talking about. Right? Please don't hit scam. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry. Sorry. We're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No. Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But I wonder if we could talk about a more recent A's team. I want to talk about one player for just a second, and then I'll let you make uh, listeners listen again. Uh, Pete Browning played for the Louisville team in the 19th century, and he was called the Gladiator, and he was also called uh, uh, Pietro, what was it, Nocturnal Activities. uh, The the (laughs) writers had loads of names for him. Pete Browning played in the AA, right, which was the American League of the 19th century. American Association. The American Association. And he would get on the train and go, I am Pete Browning, and I am the batting leader of the American. He would announce himself, right? I'm hitting 381, right? And he couldn't field at all. The ball would hit him in the head and stuff, for real. He also had a terrible um, mastoid infection most of his career. So he drank to uh, keep the pain down. You know, this is the patent medicine era of America where there were opioids available in bottles at the pharmacy. Just like now. <laughs> oh, yeah. No question. Except instead of Oxy, it was uh, Lydia Pinkham's, right. you know, serum. Uh, <laughs> so he drank like a, vi- a viper and uh, he saved a child from getting hit by a streetcar. And um, he, like I said, he would be in the outfield and the ball would hit him in the head. He literally couldn't feel the ball, but he could rope the ball. And he's the first player, because he played for Louisville, to go to that factory at Hillrich and Bradsby, and they made him a bat. And that is the Louisville slugger. And so he's he's sort of famous for that. But like, there were some pretty wild... The 19th century is extraordinarily racist and violent in baseball. It's just a... The, you know, umpires being literally beaten by the crowd, beaten by, by players, uh... Guys would spike each other in the face and, you know, grab each other's belts coming around. Thir- Mind you, there was one umpire and then two umpires. So the umpire would stand after a couple – if a guy got on base, the umpire would come out from behind the plate and stand behind the pitcher and call balls and strikes. So you could cut around second and never touch second. I don't think anyone touched second for the whole of the 19th century when they were going from first to third. I mean, the cheating was just 
there's an argument that the reason the National League sort of rose above the other competing leagues is because they had this very strict, they decided we were going to be the sober league or the American League eventually became the sober league. Uh, we're going to try to enforce this stuff. And, and you know, we're guys like, uh, uh, you know, the cheaters and uh, uh, all these other dudes, the uh, John McGraw and everybody uh, trying to smack those guys down is is what was a, a hindrance to baseball for a while. And eventually they got it under control once Ban Johnson and the American League came on board. Well, yeah, theoretically, and McGraw went on to only play in the National League for another and manage for another 32 years after that. But uh, cleaned up his act uh, a little. <laughs> he, he, a little bit. His last act in baseball was to file a grievance with the league. Um, the, yeah, they were they were super dirty. Uh, the, the Baltimore Orioles of the 1890s might have been next to the Cleveland team, the dirtiest team that ever walked on the field. They like the catcher would throw dirt in the umpire's face at plays at the plate. Like if a guy was trying to score, the catcher just turn and throw dirt in his face, so the umpire would be like this, and then out, right? The <laughs> catcher would scream out, and and they literally did uh, hold. John McGraw was famous for holding guys' belts when they were taking a lead off third to not let them try to score. And by the way, John McGraw was five foot six and weighed one hundred and thirty pounds. He was a shrimp and tough as nails. So you're saying they didn't have instant replay in those days? <laughs> <laughs> That's what makes me laugh so hard about shaking the pitchers down and uh, uh, the instant replay. And, oh, my God, this guy pitched, you know, 100 pitches. He's over his pitch count. Like in the 19th century and the early 20th century, there wasn't even a trainer. I mean, you know, if you got hurt, you were pretty much gone. I mean, I'm saying it was better. It wasn't better at all. It was horrible. But um, Well, pitching, you know, 100 pitch limit, 100 pitches limit is uh, not better. Right. I mean, you know, there was pitchers who pitched 400 innings in those days and and or Cy Young. Okay, I'm not sure that's better. That might not be better. Right. You know, (laughs) no one's going to get near Cy Young. They had already had Tommy John surgery at the time, I understand. (laughs) It was called, I don't know, Tug McGraw surgery. I don't know. (laughs) Old Hoss Radborn surgery is actually what it was called. There you go. (laughs) Old Hoss Radborn what did he win? He had a huge year in what was it? The Providence Grays or something? Yeah. 84? Yes. yes. The old Haas. Yeah, no, you were expected to show up every day and play. And you were expected to be Irish or German because basically those were the two nationalities. <laughs> and definitely white. Right. And if women went to the game, uh, it was uh, let, let's just say they were lower than theater people baseball players (laughs) they didn't get to be in the good hotels you know that took a while to let them stay in nice places because they chewed tobacco they drank they chased girls they were horrible uh so rough and ready in those days and of course they didn't let black people play uh because you know oh and then there's that actually speaking of which um we know that you are um very involved with the negro league baseball hall of fame and i wanted to ask you a little bit about that and how you got involved with that and a little bit um trying i don't know i'm gonna get struck by lightning i know it for changing the subject off of the san francisco giants but to talk about that please change (laughs) um i mean the way you predicted the end of that other game i'm a little afraid but um uh, to ask you about the rest of your life and how you you know whether this this stuff comes into it ever because we're always talking about how baseball is very reflective of and intersects with a lot of other uh areas of life and the world. So I'm, I'm curious about both those things. I'm not certain of your question. I, the first question was um, about your involvement with the Negro League Baseball oh, Hall yes. of Fame and how that came about and what you're, you're doing with that. 
Well, nothing at the moment uh, because we had to postpone last year's uh, Hall of Game ceremony. Uh, last year was the centenary of the official uh, Negro Leagues that Rube Foster started in 1920. Um, and then uh, this year, they've sort of been celebrating themselves home on it. Uh, I Bob Kendrick, who's a friend of mine, who's the um, president of the Negro Leagues Museum, has been going around the country doing loads of events. They got Major League Baseball to give them a bunch of money. I don't know if you've noticed, but Major League Baseball is doing these like Negro League minutes where they talk about different elements of the Negro Leagues, how Negro League players played, uh, served in World War II. How, you know, they'll t- pick a different player every day, John Donaldson or Satchel Paige or whatever. And I'm, I'm all for it. I, I, it's getting the Major Leagues involved in it. And then, of course, there was the statistics that happened this year where Major League Baseball decided to officially recognize statistics between, strangely, 1920 and 1948. It is weird because not only did the Negro Leagues continue – um, but there were mm. predecessor leagues and everything else. It's really controversial. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everybody's first reaction to that was, hey, that's great. And then you realize, well, wait a minute, there are kind of apples and oranges issues. And then part of the thing that I've read from from certain people, and I think I agree with it, is not having that level of specificity on some level helped add to the mystique and romance of the Negro Leagues. When you hear Josh Gibson had officially 162 home runs, that seems like a downer when there were so many unofficial games and there were so many barnstorming tours that aren't caught and all that. Uh, I don't know. I just sort of, I don't know how I feel about it. Do you have some thoughts about it? Well, I'm, uh, you know, in my heart, I feel like they're being ripped off yet again. On the other hand, I uh, conferred with Bob about it uh, when it happened. And Bob's take is always a very, very diplomatic and adult take. And his was, we're happy to finally be recognized. We never needed the major leagues to recognize us, was his take on it. We didn't need them to recognize us in the 19th century. We didn't need them to recognize us before Jackie. Now that they've done it, how nice is how he's looking at it. That is a very diplomatic way to put it. <laughs> so diplomatic. You're leaving out uh, uh, Fleet Walker. You're leaving out Frank Grant and all the great players from the early 20th century. Uh, Joe, Will- uh, Joe, Bullet Joe Rogan, Smokey Joe Williams, uh, uh, John Donaldson, who I mentioned. Um, and then you're missing a bunch of players who played before in World War I, uh, uh, Oscar Charleston and whatnot. And then... Willie Mays gets some extra hits, I think, from being on the Barons, but only one extra homer, but his average goes down a point or two because they've added the Negro Leagues to him, which seems wholly unfair now that he's 90. So, Especially because of the 302 lifetime batting average. You can't drop that a point or two, right? Right? (laughs) I think he dropped down to 301 or something simply because they added a couple of, like a season and a half. Mind you, he was 17 and 18 when he played on that team. And they were, by the way, uh, the champions. Uh, when he played with the Barons, they actually won their, uh, the title that year. Um, and you can see him in the clubhouse. He's the kid in the back with no shirt on going like this. The, all the other players look old and he's like 12. Um, uh, so that's how I feel about it. I think it's good that to be recognized by Major League Baseball. Is Major League Baseball ever going to acknowledge the vast amount of racism that went into keeping everyone out of the game that wasn't a white guy no they're 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 making incremental strides you noticed a couple weeks ago they uh, started a program where they threw a couple million dollars at getting black people back involved in the game and stuff like that that doesn't speak at all to the fact that all of the owners are almost all white supremacists and racists 
please don't sue me or call. <laughs> um, and it's like the NFL. Yeah, we talk about that a lot on this podcast. Hey, truth is a defense, man. Truth is a defense. Right. And I would never say this to Bob because Bob has to deal with Major League Baseball. So I got involved with him about five years ago. I was playing in Kansas City. And um, you don't mean playing baseball, as I as I understand who no, you are. stand-up comedy. Stand-up comedy. Oh, okay. Sorry. It's making sure. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's a lot of 60-year-old uh, baseball players uh, like me running around playing that itinerant. Hey, hey you we're know. in huge demand. It's our weight. I had I think, to make sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, no, I was, I was playing the improv in Kansas City, which isn't actually in Kansas City. It's near a Waffle House outside of Kansas City. And uh, <laughs> I was tweeting, DMing Bob on Twitter. And my wife, Jennifer, said, why don't you tell him you're coming to Kansas City? This is all Jennifer's doing. And so I did. And he came and saw my show. I went over to the museum, took the tour with him, met him. Then he came to my show and then he came backstage after the show and we talked baseball for like three and a half hours as oh, baseball yeah. fans will do. And then that was that. The next season I was invited to host the uh, Hall of Game ceremony, which is their Hall of Fame. And uh, they, they induct players who they think exemplify the spirit and uh, tenacity and conduct of the Negro Leagues. And everybody that I've met there, and I've met Dave Parker and uh, Dick Allen, um, uh, Lee Smith, who finally went into the actual White People Hall of Fame, uh, 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 Tony Perez, uh, Maury Wills, all of them were exemplary human beings. Eric Davis, Fred McGuiff, um, uh, Sharon Robinson, Jackie's daughter. Everyone you'll meet there has a charity, are charitable people, are, are beautiful members of their community, and are doing everything they can literally every day to help Dave Stewart and his wife, um, who Dave Stewart's had quite a lot to say. You may have noticed about the controversy with the Dodgers pitching staff and Bauer. Um, you know, a lot of them should be in the actual hall of fame, the white people hall of fame. Dave Stewart should have been, uh, Lee Smith should be Maury Wills, clearly Dave Parker, uh, Eric Davis. I can make an argument for all of them. Um, but white baseball's real, real racist because the writers association is almost all white and hardly any of them speak Spanish. So really we're talking about, you know, if you were a scientist and you only knew one field like microbiology and they asked you to cover uh, astronomy is basically what the baseball writers are doing. They have no idea about black culture. They have no idea about Hispanic culture. They have no idea about a lot of things. And yet they're asked to vote all the time and make moral and ethical judgments on ball players. Notice they never make moral and ethical judgments about the owners of the game, um, in which case you would have no owners in the Hall of Fame, and you might bar a bunch of people from existing uh, because of their unbelievable mendacity. And uh, we never talk about the collusion in 82. Uh, we never talk about how during the steroid era, the owners absolutely looked the other way and that steroids were not illegal in baseball. Bud Selig is in and Barry Bonds is out. Right? Yeah. In, in Cooperstown, right? I mean, right? I mean, you, you, we make this moral decision that some players were morally pure and didn't cheat and that others cheated when the owners profited from everything that's happened. As Marvin Miller said when he took over as the players rep in 66, he was asked to look at the major league's books, which they would not let him look at, but said he found out in 66 that before the first pitch was thrown on opening day with the TV contracts and everything, all the owners were already in profit. 
And that's never changed. There hasn't been a moment of change in that. I assure you that every single major league franchise is in profit, including the Oakland Athletics and the Tampa Bays, uh, or whatever they're called now. They're a Coke dealer. They're Tampa Bay Ray, are they? Um, <laughs> they used to be the Devil Rays. Now they're a dude you go visit behind the Waffle House to see if you can score. Um, uh, and and that's my that's been my always my problem with baseball. So anyway, to, the, the Negro League Museum is a wonderful institution. They are very educational. Uh, they don't really. They, they don't have to drive home the point of segregation and Jim Crow because it's evident when you walk in and if you go, you'll love it. Um, when you first walk in, there's a field of dreams and there's statues of all the great players, Page, Gibson, Dandridge, this, that, you know, uh, a poploid, whatnot. And there's a chicken wire fence that keeps you from getting on that field. And the chicken wire fence is there for several reasons. One, Black people, when they were allowed to go to white ballparks, were often segregated and put behind a chicken wire fence down the left field line. And two, that's the absolute symbol of segregation in America for ages and ages at sporting events was chicken wire. So then you go through the whole exhibit and learn about all the, their jazz connections, their cultural connections, the, the, how resonant and how splendid and how resilient the Black community was to come up with their own league and make it this giant, successful, sexy, thriving thing that was all over the United States and Canada, all over Central and South America, right? I mean, this is a, a league that played in the Caribbean, a league that played in Venezuela, Mexico, Canada, uh, all over the Western United States and tournaments that allowed black teams to play or even integrated teams occasionally. Uh, and then at the very end of it, you're allowed on the field. And there's a metaphor there that's more powerful than if I told you black people weren't allowed to play and bummed you out at the beginning. The metaphor of having to go through that journey, I think, is what makes it so educational and elucidating. Uh, and, and at the end of the day, triumphant, because I think that, you know, I have a friend and he's always like, why don't you talk more about the Negro Leagues? And I'm like, you misunderstand me. It's not that I'm talking about obscure baseball that you don't care about. It's the American condition, like you said, Tova. Uh, baseball is 10, 15 years behind society almost all the time, except for in the last two years when it got accelerated beyond measure. What do you mean by that? Uh, George Floyd. Well, everything that happened last year. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, we, we often wonder whether. Because Orange 45. Yeah. I mean, we just often wonder, I often wonder whether that was just a one-off guilt trip or that is a real commitment. And I agree that the money that, that's been spent um, as a result of last year is, is, you know, that's impressive. But we'll see. I think, I think time will tell on that one. Absolutely, time will tell. The, the reason you'll know when it gets better is when there's, oh, I don't know, Black owners and Black managers, Latin owners, Latin managers. Yeah, front office. Yeah, exactly. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. 
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I wanted to ask a follow-up question because you began uh, by talking a little about the Giants team's late 60s. One of the names you mentioned was Bobby Bonds, who was, you know, one of my favorite players. I started following. Oh, we're back to the Giants fans. Order a pizza, Toba. Oh, uh, yeah, really. Hey, can I, um, can I get the phone? No, guys like Dick Allen, who didn't play for the Giants, Maury Wills, who certainly didn't play for the Giants, they're of this generation. They're not the Trailblazers, right? They're one generation after the Monty Irvins, the Jackie Robinsons, the Larry Dobies, et cetera. But while they were playing, forgetting how they were treating a guy like Dick Allen, who clearly has Hall of Fame credentials, how they were treated by the writers while they in retirement, but while they were playing, there was always this kind of narrative that the white press tried to present about those kinds of that generation of African. We can include that to Doc Ellis, Reggie Jackson. Yep. I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about that for a moment. Well, it's it's so evident, Link, and it's just exactly right. Um, like, for instance, Dick Allen. Um, uh, when Dick Allen uh, was sent to uh, Arkansas to be in AAA by the Phillies organization in 63, um, he was the first black player to play professional organized ball in the state of Arkansas for a white team. And he told us that people threw batteries at him, quarters at him, that he was segregated in his housing that he was abused and uh, reviled on the pitch everywhere he played in, the, in that league. And then by the end of the year, because he was the best player in the league and they won the pennant, they gave him a loving cup and a bouquet and a, and a stereo and a car. And they had a Dick Allen day for him. So it took one whole season for them, the white rednecks down there, to, they lost their shit because a big black guy who was outspoken. And by the way, as you recall, Lincoln, they called him Richie, right? Like they called Roberto Clemente Bob when he came up. The writers refused to call him Roberto. And finally, after a while, he was like, my name is Roberto and I'm not responding to Bob. So, you know, chinga. And uh, Dick Allen went through the same thing. Then he was supposed to be a big troublemaker, right? And all the teams he was on, he was trouble. He punched Frank Thomas. But that's because Frank Thomas called him a terrible name. And he openly said that his managers were racist, which they were. So for him to be that honest was something the white writers were really not ready to deal with. And I don't want to single out Bill James, but Bill James is an important baseball writer and an important statistician. And he created this weird era that we live in now where there's whip and war and all the jazz that were constantly being fed. and exit velocity and and angle of this and that and all the things to me that make baseball a bunch of fucking white bullshit um <laughs> i'll be very honest uh i love statistics as much as the next person but uh, billy beaning everything to death to me is like why don't you just squeeze the fun out of cc sabathia said it a couple of weeks ago you saw his interview he said they want people to play the white way the white way 
Uh, whereas baseball is supposed to be played with joy. You're supposed to catch the ball behind your back. You're supposed to do a backflip like Ozzy Smith. You're supposed to make the crowd love you by waving your hat when you run around the bases. Well, that's the whole conversation we've been having around Latino baseball players that, that you know, around the uh, Tatis and all of these other kind of Latino players who are, are have been... I don't know. I mean, uh, they don't play by the uh, unwritten rules, you know, and all of these kinds of things. And uh, and even Asian players we have now seen um, also are very, very stereotyped. It's, um, it's not, you know, it's not as bad as it was at one time, but certainly there's a lot there. Well, I mean, you saw Tatis Homer in the All-Star game. And that was beautiful. Fantastically, my Fox station wouldn't come in here during it. So I watched it on the Latin station. And they had his brother on, and his brother called the home run. Oh, wow. It was so exciting and so great to watch Latin ball uh, and watch his brother make the home run call. Like, Pelota! Right? And, they, and they're, you know, <laughs> they're on and on and on and on. And that's where the fun is. I mean, yeah. the whole you don't steal on a guy when you're ahead and you don't hot dog when you hit a homer and all that jazz. That's white people's stuff, like whip and war and all that. And eggs of what is it, the angle? What is it they call it when they launch angle? What is it? Oh, the launch angle. The launch angle. I think Babe Ruth would never stop throwing up if he heard the words launch angle. And uh, uh, Jane Levy wrote a really extraordinarily good book about him two years ago where she talked about how the unbelievable reflexes Babe Ruth had, whereas if he played today even, he, he really was an extraordinary athlete and could see the ball like very few batters could, as well as being an amazing pitcher. Um, I think Josh Gibson and, you know, let's be honest, Rube Foster and all the innovators of black ball would have incorporated all of these things, but they wouldn't have lost the showbiz element. They wouldn't have lost the fun element. Baseball is like a television network. It's an entertainment enterprise as well as being an athletic enterprise. It is first and foremost entertainment. And the white owners have never known that. The white owners have never known that little children take baseball to their hearts, that people who can't leave their home for whatever reason, that baseball means the world to them, the world to them. And I'm not being an overly sentimental, maudlin, middle-aged guy when I say this. In 1997, I did a baseball documentary for Radio 5 in England, and we interviewed Marvin Miller, and we interviewed the then players rep, Donald Fear, the aptly named Donald Fear. And <laughs> I said to him, in 94, uh, uh, the league, uh, the owners shut the game down and the season ended and no World Series and children wept, right? I said to him, children wept and people were upset. And he went, I don't think children wept. And I went, I do. I think children wept. Yeah. I mean, I think about last year, honestly, with COVID, I, I you know, I wasn't comfortable saying it all the time, but I mean, it was true not having baseball, and we, you know, we we discuss, and I, I don't, you know, I don't know how I feel about their having played part of a season last year and all of that, but I will say, I will admit that not having baseball last year contributed to my in the the challenge of COVID for me. I couldn't agree more. I was watching the KBO. You watch any of the KBO games at five in the morning? That's where I was. <laughs> right, right. No, a, a couple, but I, he, I felt last year at the beginning of the season. They misplayed everything horribly like they always do. Rob Manfred is a, a complete, uh, as we would say when we were little, morphodite, um, <laughs> meaning he's a, a useless uh, tool, uh, 
somewhere between Bowie Kuhn and Donald and, and Bud Selig, somewhere in that useless category. There's been literally no commissioners of baseball that were worth shit. Maybe Happy Chandler and partially Peter Ubroff for two seconds. Other than that, nah. You might as well have um, the most sanguine, horrible corporate bean counter in the fucking world uh, sticking his, if you'll pardon the expression, manhood into our beloved game, which we love because we love the players. No one's ever gone to a baseball game to see an owner. No one's ever gone to a baseball game to see an executive. No one's ever gone to a baseball game hoping the commissioner would show up. Um, they misunderstand almost utterly what baseball is to people. And that is shocking to me after 150 years. A lot of people misunderstand, including the writers, is that we don't we have a commissioner in name, but he's the he's the chair of a board of directors of owners. That's his job. And I'm not defending him. I'm saying I, I it's 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 antithetical to all these things you're talking about. It's not about the love of baseball. It's about advancing the interests of the owners. In the case of this commissioner, not realizing that ignoring people's passion for the game is ultimately bad for the owners in the long run. That's where Manfred gets it really wrong. Selig was always out for the owners, but Selig also understood that baseball was something that needed to be preserved and cultivated and its reputation and its role in American culture. Manfred, he could be selling Pepsi-Cola. He doesn't care. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. He's at the Bowie Kuhn yeah. level. Bowie Kuhn, I think, single-handedly tried to destroy baseball as much as he could when I was a child. And, uh, and, and was... Well, was I mean... Cool. As overmatched in that job as anybody I've ever seen in any job. Yeah. Completely underwater. Uh, uh, I mean, like what you say, Craig, you know, what I would have done last year is not have the season. I would have um, given millions of dollars to charities, including uh, black charities, because the country was in the middle of a gigantic police riot where the police decided they were really, really angry at us for finally discovering that they're this weird, brutal Nazi force run by municipalities that are almost utterly lawless. Here in Los Angeles, Maxine Waters has asked the Justice Department just today to investigate the LA Sheriff's Department because within the Sheriff's Department, there are homicidal gangs that go around and kill people and then go and drink afterward in bars and celebrate and get tattoos. And this has been going on for ages and ages. This is the story of America that no one ever wants to talk about. The police are the slave patrols of the 1860s and 70s. That's what police are. That's what their job has been described as. It's not the police's fault in a lot of ways. It's this gigantic thing. So having said that, I would have stopped the season last year, give a bunch of money to charity, and then said, we're going to have the season next year when there's no COVID, and all children under 14 will get in free to every game. I'm not kidding. I would have done that. It, I know it sounds like, oh, Greg, you're just crazy. No, I'm not. I'm not. What baseball doesn't need is a clock to measure the pitcher's time, how long they're taking on the mound. What baseball doesn't need is the umpire shaking the pitchers down and making them undress before every pitch. What baseball needs is $5 parking $10 admissions and $3 hot dogs. That's what baseball needs. For real, for fucking real. LA doesn't have a, ne a, a network um, local station that shows baseball. You have to buy a cable package and or go on MLB. Like the Giants Dodgers played here this weekend. A very big series here in LA. Place, uh, um, you, you used to be able to watch it on a regular local Dodgers station. That's gone. And that's where baseball is absolutely blowing it. And he, oh, why don't black people like the game? Gee, I wonder. 
Gee, I wonder. Because maybe in football and basketball, they feel like they have an, a, a chance to be stars and a chance that other black people will enjoy the game and stuff. Why would you want to watch a game where the New York Mets manager is clearly a sexist dickhead, where the Seattle Mariners manager hates Asian people when they're in the biggest Asian market in the country. Gee, I don't know. Why don't minorities want to play baseball? Because they're being told at every moment that they're not really welcome in the game, even though they built the goddamn game brick by fucking brick and had to fight their way into it. And sorry, I'm getting a little vehement now, but that's, you know... <laughs> This is what we're talking about here. Like, if you love baseball, you love it for the reasons that you love baseball. Because you want to see Fernando Tatis hit a tater and then dance around backwards. That's why you love baseball. You don't love it because Rob Manfred issued an edict. Yeah, I mean, the, so the latest example of that that just came up is, well, came there was a milestone in it, is the uh, Oakland A's. And they're trying to bully the city of Oakland into, what, Craig, a billion dollars? Uh, to build a new stadium, uh, about eight hundred, eight hundred and fifty million, which will turn into a billion by the time it's all said and done. Oh well, that's not so bad then. And it's all all in service of a real estate development, not a ballpark. Really, they're going to get the ballpark. They're going to pay for it themselves, but they want a billion dollars to finance the side business of John Fisher and developing the former Coliseum site in the area around Howard Terminal. So, having said that. And knowing that venality is absolutely what John Fisher's about, that since the Haas family barfed up the team when they were quite successful, they've gone to the playoffs a bunch of times in the teens. Why weren't why didn't the A's win two or three World Series like the Giants did? They're that good. They really are that good. Um, this owner is an absolute disgrace to baseball. He's completely opaque. No one knows who he is. No one knows what he looks like. No one knows where his money comes from. The Stockton Ports, who are one of the Oakland A's minor league teams, are having to pay their own hotel bills while they're at home. And then sometimes when they play nearby, they make them come back after the game and pay their hotel bills. So the players literally can't afford to play baseball anymore. The Baseball America Act that went through Congress a couple of years ago is one of the most shocking and horrible things that ever happened to baseball. Absolutely abrogated all the owners from supporting the minor leagues. The minor leagues used to be a place where you could go see rookie league, single A, double A, triple A. And those players, however poorly they were paid, they had to eat hamburgers or whatever, uh, still got paid. And they didn't have to pay their own hotel bills. That's gone. John Fisher literally could pay the hotel bill for every player in the minor leagues that's, that's playing in the minor leagues right now and still have billions of dollars. That's how greedy they are. And that's how awful a human being he is. And he should be nowhere near owning a major league team. He should literally be nowhere near the minor leagues is a whole nother topic of, uh, you know, they're treating them like crap. Um, they should have a union, mm -hmm. uh, the minor league baseball players, and the whole contraction so that they're now under the control of MLB is taking them away from all sorts of uh, places where people were loving baseball. Another example of they're not in really doing the things that would grow and sustain baseball. Well, I mean, do you remember, uh, uh, you know, they, they have to take their food home from the buffets. They're given a crappy uh, meal after the game. They're given a very pittance. Did you see the pictures of those sandwiches? Yeah. Yes. It's dire. It's Again, it's the owners. Like If you want baseball to survive, the first thing you would do was have a pipeline that went from high schools and sandlots, let's be honest, all over the country that went through the minor leagues and you supported these people with um, pay, with a union, with medical. And let the let them 
you know, perfect their craft. That's what the point of the minor leagues was. Um, Branch Rickey was a genius when he, um, you know, put, put that all together to, to make the St. Louis Cardinals and the Pittsburgh Pirates a team that had a pipeline that went to them. For instance, the Giants, uh, 10 years, 15 years ago, uh, had a bunch of rooks on the team, all of whom came through our farm system. And now everybody on the team, except for one or two guys, uh, has been purchased or acquired from other teams. Um, the Dodgers, as you recall, in the 70s and 80s, almost all those massive pitchers, that giant pitching staff, came through their own farm system. Their greed and bedevilment is something that I think is the biggest obstacle to what the future of well, I mean, you know, Link, Link probably knows more about it than I do, but I, I just feel that I like uh, the, the, that John Fisher owns a team is excruciating. And the former owner of the Dodgers before they got rid of him, <laughs> what did they used to call him down here? The Boston parking lot attendant? <laughs> Frank McCourt. McCourt. Yeah, he's he's in the process right now of ruining a uh, French soccer team. So he's doing the exact same thing in Lyon, France right now to a, a well-loved soccer team. And I write about McCourt fairly often. And anytime he comes up in the news, I get like 15 French people showing up in my DM saying, did you know what he's doing now? It's apparently happening all over again. Could you repeat that with the French accent, Craig? <laughs> right. The best thing baseball could have done is to go uh, be like FC Barcelona or the Green Bay Packers and make it a community thing. I mean, I'm very serious about that. When they started letting owners call the shots on that the public has to float a bond uh, to pay for their stadiums, um, how about you float this? Um, you're you're inconceivably wealthy. And for the people who are not seeing the this on television, uh, he was holding up his middle fingers. <laughs> you know, Reggie Jackson, who I think wrote three autobiographies, one a decade, and called all three of them Reggie. But in the first one, <laughs> yeah. He was playing for the A's at the time. He's written during the 74 season. And of course, Charlie Finley, who was really a dreadful owner, uh, was owned the team. Yeah. And Reggie says in the book, today, my owner. And then he pauses, like in a, you know, parenthetically or in a comma, sets out and says, can you believe here I am, a black man in 1974, and I just used the phrase, my owner. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's very powerful, right? I mean, this, this paradigm that we turn over to these 30, as you say, white supremacist kind of nefarious, greedy billionaires control of the game and we call it the game but of course baseball is much mercifully much bigger than any of that as we saw with your discussion of, of the negro league um, hall of fame it's 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 much bigger than the oakland a's new york yankees even than the san francisco giants and that's what sustains it and that's what i think gives me i don't have much hope in general but that's about anything but that's what gives me some hope about baseball i agree uh it's it's the fans that make it and it's the players that make it um all the players that I've met in the Negro League Hall of Game have been unbelievably awesome. Um, a sense of humor, a sense of history. I've asked each and every one of them, from Eddie Murray to, uh, uh, to Maury Wills, Dick Allen, what it meant to them to be inducted into the Negro League Hall of Game. And every single one of them talked about the past. Eddie Murray told us when we were on the bus going to the gig to do soundcheck, that when he played in the late 70s in the Sally League, he had to sit on the bus while players went and got him burgers because they wouldn't serve him. And I said, this was when? In the late 70s? And Eddie Murray went, mm-hmm. Now, mind you, I was 17 years old then. He was probably 20-something, right, playing in the minors. So this isn't none of this is ancient history. Um, 
he went to the Chet Brewer Baseball Academy in Los Angeles with Ozzie Smith. Chet Brewer was an outstanding pitcher in the Negro Leagues. Chet Brewer had a baseball academy that largely trained black uh, kids here in Los Angeles to play baseball. So the through line going all the way back to the beginning of the Negro Leagues to now is nothing. We're talking about three or four generations here. This isn't, none of this is ancient history. Willie Mace, who's alive, and Henry Aaron, who's just passed, um, could easily tell you about where they were allowed to go and not go when they were teenage ballplayers, where they were allowed to eat and where they were allowed to not eat, what ballparks they could dress in and which ballparks they couldn't. And even in the minor leagues and even in the big leagues, I mean, you know, this isn't, this isn't solved. Uh, it's, it's an ongoing thing like America. Uh, we're bathed in original sin, and uh, our original sin is uh, bondage and slavery, and uh, the other original sin is fighting the Civil War to extend slavery and not end it. And uh, now we're onto a deep philosophical plane that I think all of your listeners are going to tune out now. Our listeners are on that. No, 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 no. You'd be surprised. That is, that is our listenership. <laughs> they're, they're hanging on your every word now. <laughs> I mean, you know, you were hitting our demographic. It's like, uh, you know, all of my heroes when I was little were, you know, Juan Marichal and, and Willie Mays. And you don't care when you're little. You literally don't care where the players are from or what color they are, any of that jazz. And then we haven't even got into the sexism. I mean, finally, three nights ago, we had an all female. Uh, uh, announcing team, and that was on YouTube. It was on the YouTube channel, not on network, not on ESPN. But finally, it was five women calling a game. That's supposedly the first time in Major League history that it's been an all-woman announcing crew. How difficult do you think it is to announce a baseball game? Do you think it requires intellect? Do you think it... As Howard Cosell once said in the 70s, they asked him about... It doesn't require having played, you know, for one mm -mm. thing. No, absolutely not. And sometimes it's a disadvantage to have played. Clearly. Clearly not. John Miller, who's one of the great baseball announcers of all time, never played a inning of baseball and is a superb and speaks elegant, fluent Spanish. Um, John, watching, listening to John Miller is like having your slightly stoned Giants fan friend come over during the game. Right. And here comes Gaussman. And if you're me, you have a lot of slightly stoned Giants fan friends, right? Oh, I am certainly one of them. One and two. Uh, John Miller. Pelota. Um, the, uh, uh, they, they had women finally announced. There's been minor league uh, women that have done it. I follow all of them on Twitter, and I, I try to encourage them uh, because I know that their lives are not easy. Uh, two years ago, how the Astros general manager acted in the clubhouse against the women riders oh, will give yeah, you a yeah. real good idea of where a lot of the guys in baseball are coming from. Um, that shit dies hard, uh, even in the era where we recognize trans people and in the era where we recognize gender fluidity. And and the mercifully, the younger generation doesn't give a shit about marijuana, abortion, and gender. Uh we're still dealing with great grandfather's mindset on a good deal of things here. There's one woman GM, one woman. And how She's long so did it overqualified. Take her? How long right? did it take her? It, I it, mean, <laughs> if she if she'd been a man, she would have been a GM 20 years ago. Literally, literally 20 years ago. Yep. Right. I mean, it's that simple. Yeah. So Jeter, I, I give Jeter credit for that. 
for, for recognizing that and doing it. However, having said that, I remember Pam Postima umping at games in spring training oh, in the yeah. late 80s when I used to go to spring training. Um, yep. They never let a woman be an um. um. I've said it before, and I will say it again. Women need to be integrated into Major League Baseball. There's no reason women shouldn't be playing with men in Major League Baseball. A lot of guys freak out on me, literally freak the fuck out, and are like, <laughs> really? Really? You don't think a woman can manage a team? As Howard Cassell said in the 70s, they asked him, how come there's no black managers? And he went, have you met any of the managers? Do you really think that it requires intelligence to manage a baseball team? <laughs> We're talking about guys who spit on the ground and say ain't and horse shit and stuff like that and are as crackery as the – I mean, I love Sparky Anderson as much as any other human being. Sparky Anderson was not exactly an, uh, an intellectual. He was a great baseball mind. And probably less prejudiced than a good deal of managers who played. Maybe not as as open-minded as, say, Danny Murtaugh or something. The Giants have had some of the great racist managers in baseball, including... Um, Alvin Dark. Alvin Dark. Yeah. Alvin Dark, famously. And Dave Bristol was no bargain either. Who? Dave Bristol was no bargain either. Oh, I Bristol. I mean, he was a terrible manager. And I'm not talking specifically on race-related issues, but... The bullying and the insensitivity he showed to Mike Ivey really shows that uh, Bristol was an enlightened, thoughtful guy. I mean, he was dreadful for Mike Ivey. No, Mike Ivey had emotional problems and needed and therapy. Ridiculed him and attacked him and said he was weak. I mean, it really pushed him out of baseball. It's a classic. Oh, no, he was a sissy. And Her Herman Frank's, uh, uh, my friend Steve Eigenberg, who's a giant, giant and ace fan and really an expert on the game, um, would always tell me that uh, Jim Ray Hart, who played third in left field for the Giants and was a superb slugger, um, was a terrible alcoholic. And Herman Franks used to give him bottles of whiskey when he hit a tater and stuff. I mean, it's that disconnect of, you know, not helping, never. When you think about all the players that could have used help, i.e., oh, oh, I don't know, Maury Wills even, or for instance, Dave Stewart, when he was going through that incredibly rough patch when he was with Texas and whatnot. And then Tony, he ended up with Tony La Russa, who has his own issues. Oh, please. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a major lack of sensitivity in baseball, and you're an intellectual in baseball if you read a, a a book without pictures. If you go into a major league clubhouses, maybe not so much now, but certainly 10, 15 years ago, it was Rush Limbaugh. That's what the white players were watching. I mean, Craig might know, but is it is it that different now? Or no, it's it's really not all that different. I mean, there's a big reason why we have so many ballplayers who aren't vaccinated. It's because they're all getting their news from Newsmax and Fox News and stuff. Well, it's a personal choice. It's a personal choice. Oh yeah, personal. <laughs> yeah. Um, now it's it's still a huge outside of the Latino players for the most part. It's still a very very conservative group. They they've learned to dress it up a little bit better. But I've said this before on this show, but I asked Kevin Mitchell about this. And about the dynamic of being an African-American guy from an urban setting in a ball clubhouses that were filled with white guys from the South. And I asked him about the racial dynamic of that. He looked at me for about 30 seconds. And then he said, very nicely, because we were having a great dude. We were having a good conversation. He says, I think you need to ask the next question. Because he didn't want to get into it, risk being misquoted. Not that I was trying to embarrass him or anything, but mm -hmm, yeah, I think mm -hmm. he's still there. And that man was the most valuable player in the National League. Uh, hit home run in the World Series. Really did everything the Giants asked him to do. Great player for the Mets in '86. Started that rally, that won that World Series without him. Superb player. But he was a decent player as a DH for the A's after that. I mean, like, I he was one of my favorite players. Yeah. No, he's from the Gentile side of the family. <laughs> right. 
he was racing many cars in the desert in Yuma and he got a call up from the A's and I happened to be at that game. It was like 89 or something at later spring night. training. And he hit two home runs that night in like, I can't remember where we were. One of the crappy little minor league parks they had then in uh, Arizona and um, good year somewhere. And um, I said to the guys, I turned to my friends, I was with Will and Debbie Durst who are San Francisco legends. Uh, Kevin Mitchell's back in the big leagues and the A's signed him and he played another, what, year or two with them, DHing. I mean, uh, yeah, I think the next frontier is to get women into the front office more, women into the booth more, women into the managing and coaching roles. The Giants have a woman coach. Um, and then I think getting them to play. Don't leave out umpires because that's always and umpires. going way back. I, I was starting to go to umpire school 25 years ago. Never did it though. I remember that. Yeah. Well, I remember the abuse that Pam Postima endured, and she was quite a good umpire. I saw her ump several times, and um, she was pretty hard, baby. It had to be. But the other, the kind of abuse that they hurl on her was fairly extraordinary. And, uh, you know, it, women, and particularly women of color, uh, America has a giant issue, uh, and that is we have to own everything you do we have to own your body we have to own how you think we have to own what you say there's this real possession thing going on and i think that's a good deal of you know what's going on i think baseball's moving forward incrementally but more than it has now you really don't see a broadcast of a baseball game where they at least don't have a woman color person on the field or in the stands to kind of pep it up a little but then they they have to say the most anodyne things whereas men are allowed to be joe buck they're allowed to be inconceivable mediocrities like just unbelievable trump level mediocre uh and still succeed wildly you know i mean mediocre is a charitable way to describe the mango mussolini but um i'm being i'm undercharacterizing here i think you'll find (laughs) undercharacterizing is a strong part of my game uh, you know, you watch that, you watch the Braves or, or other teams on TV. I was watching the angels the other night and the A's, the announcers are just dire, dire, colorless. Well, they're all, they're nepotism cases. The the Braves have a third generation guy in Chip Carey. Who's terrible. Joe Buck is a nepotism case. Tom Brenneman, who talked his way out of that job with Cincinnati yep. by being a homophobe was a nepotism case. It's ridiculous. It is. I live in New York and I tell my kids not to listen to the Yankees on the radio because they'll end up dumber than when they started. I mean, not that they're dumb now, but... Oh, God, let's not go there. <laughs> oh, it's just awful. They're they're boring. They're anodyne. They're corporate drones. They're talking about a launch angle and this and that. Uh, they're not colorful at all. There's no black announcers. There's very few. There's no Latin announcers. Most of the white guys don't speak any Spanish at all, so that it's impossible for them to communicate with the Latin players in a real sense. Uh, after the game or anything like that and that just seems to go on and on that's something i'd really like to see fixed in baseball not that i want you know now link will remember the giants had an announcer named lon simmons for a thousand years and lon liked to drink and um uh, lon's strength was that he never spoke basically he'd go um (laughs) here comes will clark ball one this is the radio. And then you hear in the background, peanuts, popcorn, peanuts. Because there are like seven fans there. All <laughs> two. <laughs> Do you not know? Nothing. <laughs> 
That actually sounds like an ideal broadcast. No description of anything in the new peanuts, popcorn. Strike one. <laughs> <laughs> but having said that, when they'd hit a home run, he would be quiet for a second and let the crowd fill in. The, th- the thing about Vin Scully, even though we found out that Vin Scully's politics are probably not as <clears throat> enlightened as we wanted them to be. Mind you, he's a man from the World War II era. Um, was that Vin Scully drew a picture when you listen to him on the radio. And at the end, he was only on telly. But when, he, when I first moved to Los Angeles, he was on the radio. And I always hated him because when they let him do the national games, when the Dodgers were good in the 80s, he'd go, well, Jeff Hamilton's hitting a robust 189, you know. And you'd be like, oh, what? You know, he amped the Dodgers up. So I was always said he was a homer. Then one night I was listening down here in the 90s, and um, he had Willie Mays come up into the booth. And by the way, Vin Scully finished his career in San Francisco, not in Los Angeles, did his last game against the Giants in the city. Yeah, the city. That's how parochial we are. Did you say the city? Yeah, you know the one. <laughs> ding, ding, right? I actually, I, I write for the San Francisco Examiner now, and the official policy is that the city has to be capitalized. Oh, good. When you refer to San Francisco as the city, the T and the C, it has to, and I asked them about this. That's the official, and it's been, when I'm doing research, our new San Francisco papers back to the 50s, the city is always capitalized. We are even more provincial than New York. Right, right. Oh, no, way more provincial. We're, it's the city. And, you know, and I say to the people in the rest of the country, you know, the city that keeps you up at night, the one with the black mayor and all the gay people and the tech and all that, the one that makes you worry big because, you you know, oh, my God, we're, we let people live and stuff like that. You know, that city, the one that, oh, my God, there's so much crime and homelessness and shit. And yet in your town, there's a giant billboard with a fetus glaring at you when you drive into town. I've forgotten my thread now, but I'm certain it was wildly important. It was brilliant. <laughs> I was talking about Lon Simmons at one point, but I've drifted away completely here. It's like John Miller. Uh, like John Miller. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, Vin Scully. So he brought Billy Mays up and um, he chatted with him about ball. And then he base, bar- barely called the game out, number two, out number three. Blah, blah. And they had a big long chat. And then when Willie Mays left the booth, Vin Scully went, there goes the best ball player I've ever seen. He didn't say Sandy Koufax. He didn't say Jackie Robinson, both of whom he knew quite well. Roy Campanella, who won three most valuable players. Uh, Maury Wills, Willie Davis, whoever you want to say, that played for the Dodgers. And then the last game he, he announced, he announced in San Francisco. It was a Dodger game, and he brought Willie Mays up to the booth and had him with him. And for that, I worship Vin Scully, I think. What does he say when on Koufax's fourth no-hitter, the perfect game? There's a, what is it, 11,655 people here tonight and a million butterflies. He he wrote prose. And I think, and not being overly emphatic about this, it's important to write prose. You have to prepare for the game, and then you have to be ready to say things when the situation comes up. You don't, like the football announcers, or rather soccer announcers, Ian Dark, for instance, who announces brilliantly. Uh, he just did the UEFA Cup. They'll say things like uh, uh, Holland plays France, and they'll be like, "It's a Dutch oven in here, and the French are toast." <laughs> right? They they're writing. <laughs> they're writing. You listen to Skip Carey or Joe Buck, and they're never going to say anything like that ever, ever, ever. It doesn't even occur to them to lift the game, to lift the game like Shirley Povich or Damon Runyon or or Jane Levy or uh, Marty Brenneman or uh, uh, Ernie Harwood or uh, or any of the legendary. Roger Angel, who's still alive. Roger Angel. The the game is a, 
is a beautiful thing. It's a perfect bo- Thomas Boswell. Uh, uh, I used to like reading Saber. One one author used to write, uh, "Doctor Ruth hit a home run." I called all the players doctor. Uh, and then the New York Times, I like that because it's um, Mr. Tatus. <laughs> Mr. Tatus hit a home run, and I, I love that. So, but, but why not elevate it? Why, why make it this mundane thing? Well, the launch angle on that was great. Boy, you got to love it. No, you don't got to love it. What I don't got to love is listening to white guys jerk around. Read a fucking book and read a poetry book and then go back and read <laughs> all the great sports writing of Grantland Rice and everybody because you'll find there's quite a lot. Even in recent times, Bruce Jenkins in the Bay Area is an absolutely magnificent sports writer. Who, who has a turn of, John Shea, uh, who has a turn of phrase, who has a way to put things. Uh, it, you know, I, I just, it drives me bloody mad to listen to, well, it's, you know, they're coming up, they, they haven't scored a lot. Of they don't give any information. They don't act like blind people are watching the game. They don't act, you know, whatever. Well, read a know. fucking book is one of our <laughs> mottos here at Say It Ain't Contagious. <laughs> And uh, we really want to thank you for joining us. This has been a great conversation. Uh, I know even though we spent uh, not enough time on the Giants, but I think our Bay Area listeners will have to live with that. But thank you so much for joining us on Say It Ain't Contagious. We're going to take a couple weeks off as we prepare our syllabi for the coming semester, try to get a little break, but we'll be back at the end of August or the beginning of September. Thank you so much to our special guest today, Greg Proops, to our team of, of myself, Lincoln Mitchell, Toba Wang, Craig Calcaterra, Frank Uridi and Adrian Burgos Jr. who are away on assignment today, Amanda Hardin and Evan Brown for their technical support. Thank you for joining us today. have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.